Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning again. Um, I keep forgetting sometimes to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the planting pastor here at Advent, and um, it's good uh, to be together. And, um, you know, as we were singing um, right before the prayers of the people, the song of Simeon, I, I realized that, like, some of y'all want to be like, why are we, what is this song? What is going on here? Why are we singing this? This is like multiple weeks in a row. Um, and, and, uh, the song is based on Luke chapter 2, when Jesus goes uh, to the temple and meets Simeon. Simeon was promised that he would not die until he met the Messiah, until the Messiah was revealed to him. And then he, when he met Jesus, he burst out into song, and that was the song that we sing. Um, and so it's a reminder that during the season of Epiphany, we are uh, reveling in the manifestation and the revealing of Jesus as the Messiah. Um, and so we're just kind of retelling that story to ourselves over and over again uh, each and every week. So, uh, you know, it can be a little bit weird, but hopefully now it makes a little bit more sense. And, uh, and that is what we're doing together. So um, hopefully, even if you don't like it, we're just going to keep doing it anyway. Um, <laughs> But um, we're continuing, uh, beginning last week and now continuing again back in our sermon series on the beginning of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. We're calling it The Origin Story. And last week, Will um, went through Genesis 5, what is often referred to as the Toledotes, right, which means the, the begat, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's a genealogy, um, and the function of the genealogy in Genesis 5 was much the same as the, gene as the genealogy that we did a couple months ago in Genesis 4, whereas in Genesis 4, it ends with the story of Cain and Abel, and then we get the begats from the line of Cain. Genesis 5 is the begats from the line of Seth. Right, uh, And so Genesis 5 follows that line from Adam through Seth all the way to Noah, as Will reminded us last week. And one of the really cool things is that Noah is actually halfway in the genealogies between Adam and Abraham. Right? And Abraham begins to take up the vast majority, you know, him and, and his offspring take up the vast majority of the rest of the book of Genesis. And so all of a sudden we're going through Genesis 5 and it speeds up from Adam to Noah. And then we pause here for the next couple chapters and we get to Noah um, and, and we're going to focus on him as sort of the halfway between Adam and Abraham. Um, and, and so uh, today we're going to focus um, on a very strange passage um, that leads up to kind of the background of the flood. We're going to read Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, um, and, uh, and then next week focus more on the flood, um, the flood story itself. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, which you can find on page 4, and uh, I will read for us. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, 
And they took as their wives, and they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, those men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for your word. Um, And Lord, as we encounter difficult passages like this that are hard for us to understand, we pray, Lord, that um, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, And... uh, and that we might uh, encounter you as we read your word together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We, um, as I said sort of in our confession of sin, we all have a tendency to believe that we're better than we actually are. Um, and uh, you know, one of the, the topics that I think uh, brings this about more than anything is oftentimes when people look at, at history. Um, in particular, World War II type history. We look back at Germany and we think, how on earth could anyone in the German population become a Nazi, right? They must have some sort of moral defect within their character that I do not have, right? I am not like them. They are distinct, different, and awful, right? And there's a, there's a recent documentary um, and if y'all know me, you know I, I, I just binge documentaries like crazy um, on Netflix, and it's called Ordinary Men. And the idea is that it actually goes and does a cultural uh, study of what was going on at Germany at the time to kind of uh, uh, to dispel that, that rumor that we all want to believe that I am nothing like those people. Right? It actually it goes through and it tells the fact that There's really nothing different about them that we wouldn't ourselves fall into as well, right? Um, Somehow, these very ordinary people are the same people who ultimately become SS officers, who become prison guards, right, and commit these types of atrocities. And the point is that we are supposed to encounter, as we watch this type of documentary, that just maybe our character is the exact same as theirs, right? That we as humans have something in us that is wrong. And while this is not the point of the documentary, it is at least recognizing that all of us could actually, uh, are much similar to these ordinary people, the point of this scriptural passage and the point of what I want for us to get this morning is that there is an answer for what is wrong with all of us. Right? That in light of being made in the image of God and being um, uh, uh, given his love and his mercy and crafted uh, by him in intimacy, we are not morally neutral 
in the world, right? We're not just people put into the wrong circumstances, but that we are, apart from God and His grace, sinners. And so I want to talk about that this morning. And we're going to look at this passage uh, kind of in, uh, in order. Um, in verses 1 through 5, we're going to talk about human corruption. In verses 6 and 7, divine judgment. And then lastly, divine grace. So human corruption, divine judgment, and then divine grace. So human corruption, as I mentioned earlier, this passage picks up at the end uh, of the genealogies, right, where the population on earth has grown, right? and we're, we're meant to kind of uh, think back to Genesis chapter 1, where God gave uh, Adam the commandment to be fruitful and to multiply, and that's exactly what's going on here, right? They're being fruitful. They are multiplying. It says in verse 1, man began to multiply on the face of the land or on the face of the earth. But then it introduces some incredibly confusing parts in the story. It talks about the daughters of man and the sons of God. And they're marrying and procreating together. And what is going on here? Um, These terms would have had a distinct meaning to the original audience, right? But as time has gone on, it's become less and less clear what exactly this means to us. Um, and so I'm actually going to kind of pause some of the rest of the sermon and, and talk about this for a second because uh, I, hopefully this can be instructive to us as we think about what the different options actually are um, and the different ways in which people have, um, have interpreted this. Um, The first option uh, for what this means is that this is referring to different lines of mankind, right? So that the daughters of man are uh, are the line of Cain, right? The ungodly line, and the sons of God are the line of Seth, right? And this this view sees sort of unequally yoked uh, people getting married together. There's an intermarriage of two lines that shouldn't be together. Right? You have the line of the promise with Seth and, and the line of sin with Cain, and they're coming together. But part of the trouble with this view is that it's unclear why their offspring would, um, that would have been created by, by these unions would actually be so powerful. Right? How on earth would their offspring have been the, the, the men of renown? Um, and, and why would these unions have been viewed so negatively? Um, when there's very little, uh, you know, around it within within the context that would have actually said that they shouldn't get married together. The second option is that this is referring to mankind and angelic beings. Right, that the daughters of man are mankind, and the sons of God are angelic beings. But in this case, fallen angelic beings. Because only fallen angels would be disobedient to God's uh, creative order like this. So in this view, angelic beings in in the scriptures are sometimes referred to as sons of God. Um, And this view was primarily, it was like the primary view uh, kind of of the early church fathers all the way to the Middle Ages. And it fell out of favor within the Middle Ages because of kind of this rise in Neoplatonic uh, way of viewing the world, where there's this hierarchy between spirit and body. 
right? So in the Middle Ages, they began to believe that angelic beings could not uh, participate within the bodily or the physical world. But there's actually no biblical warrant for that type of, of, uh, you know, of disagreement, right? Because there's clear evidence of God's messengers, even fallen ones, taking on flesh. If there wasn't, what's going on in Genesis chapter 3, right? As uh, the tempter takes on the flesh of a serpent. No, the problem with this view isn't that angels can't take on a physical form, or, or that evil, evil angels can't take on physical form. Um, the problem is that God punishes man for this union. Right? The punishment doesn't seem to fit if the fallen angels are the instigators, are the abusers in this relationship, right? If God was going to give a punishment to mankind, it would seem that mankind was the culprit, was the instigator, and so this is the third option, which I would say is, is my view, um, but I'm trying also to capture this uh, within the context of like, thus say Taylor, not thus say the Lord uh, in, this, in this moment, if, if y'all get what I'm saying. Um, if you smell what I'm stepping in, as I say a lot in my uh, church meetings. Um, within this view, the, the third option is that the sons of God is a reference to those being, that, that are royal on the earth. Um, so within this view, the, the plebeians, the peasants, or the laity uh, are being taken advantage of by those from, with self-appointed power. The sons of God are the kings on the earth from the line of, line of Lamech. Right? Those who have appointed themselves to be rulers over all. They have taken that power uh, that God has given to us as he says you know, that you are to have dominion over the other creatures. And they've taken it for themselves. And as a result, they've used that power for the selfish ends. Not to bless and desert, to serve others, but to serve themselves. And if we remember uh, to a month or two ago when we talked about Lamech... Um, he was renowned for his violence, right? He was bloodthirsty and he was vengeful. And so the children of these unions, the Nephilim, as they're referred to here, um, they are these mighty men uh, of great physical strength and renown. They would have been known for their physical violence, right? In other words, they're fearsome warriors that would have been known, not in a positive sense, but for just how ruthless they actually were. It would have been like me saying, right, you, just, you have your normal soldiers over here, but then you have your mighty Spartans, right? We, we kind of all know what that means. They're known for their fearsomeness. And so while it's impossible to know what interpretation is right when it comes to the daughters of men and the sons of God and the Nephilim, um, what's important here is to recognize the pattern of sin that began in Genesis chapter 3, it begins to spiral out of control here. Verse 2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. And the language here is purposeful. Right? This is the exact same language that's going on in Genesis chapter 3 as Adam and Eve look and they see that the fruit is delightful, that it's beautiful, and they take and they eat, right? They see beauty. They think that it looks good and they take it, right? 
This passage implies here that the sons of God choose more than one daughter as well. Not only that they take uh, what they want, but that they take more than they need. They're devolving further and further away from God's created design where he initially says that a man is to leave his father and mother and uh, to be united to his wife in one flesh. right? And so instead, these men just want more and more to satisfy their lustful and, and sinful hearts. So God's creation is spiraling further and further into um, a sinful sexual ethic, right? into more sinful violence toward one another, into an abuse of power. Right? And it says in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, Continually. And the scriptures are teaching us both about kind of the state of the world at that particular point in time, but also about the state of our own, of our own hearts apart from God. That apart from God, and as we pursue our own ends, we become a people who see, take, and eat, right? Or consume. Whether in greed where we, we see profit as being more valuable than the people that stand in our way, and we see, take, and eat, uh, right? take the money and run. Or whether in lust, we, we too see what's available for our sexual appetites, and we consume from a computer screen or from real life. Or whether in hate, we too see the desire for vengeance, and we decide that that is beautiful, and we want it for ourselves, so we see we take and we consume in the form of spreading gossip or in the form of physical violence. Right? We are a people who see, take, and eat. Apart from God, the intention of the thoughts of our heart is evil in the sense that it is far from Him. Right? That doesn't mean that it is utterly despicable and, and wicked in every single possible way. But it means that apart from God, our hearts are far from Him. Right? That it is self-interested, not God-interested. Right? That it is self-protective, not other-focused and brotherly love. And so as one commentator points out, the pronouncement from Genesis 1 and 2 that, that God saw that it was good has been replaced with the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And these two pronouncements go together with how we are to actually view ourselves. On the one hand, we are made in God's image. And on the other hand, we are sinful, with sinful hearts always oriented away from God apart from His grace. Right? They're oriented toward ourselves, toward things that He has made, right? toward all those things that are not Him, making things ultimate that are, that are not meant to be made ultimate. And so we live within that tension that every one of you is an image bearer and are worthy of value and dignity. And every one of you is a sinner worthy of God's judgment. And that gets us to our second point, the divine judgment of the passage. And so as we read in verse 6, we see that God regretted creating man. And certainly God's emotions are not the same as our emotions. Um, but the word that is used here to describe regretfulness 
is the exact same word that is used to, to, to talk about repentance. It is a change of mind. Right? And that's not to say that, that um, you know, God is, is repenting in the exact same way that he calls us to repentance here. But, um, you know, that, that somehow that God, like, created everything, had no clue what he was doing, and then ultimately was like, no, 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 this is terrible. I'm wiping the slate clean, and I'm going on from there. That's, that's not what this is saying. This is anthropomorphic language. Right? God is using our language to help us better understand who he is. And the point is that this situation saddens and it grieves the heart of God. The sinfulness of mankind and that devolution, I don't know if that's a word, but I'm making it up, um, into a corrupted culture demands that we be held accountable. And there's something about God's relationship to creation that fills him uh, with such sadness that the best word that he can come up with for what's going on here is regret. It might seem like the right word for us, you know, in this moment would have been, you know, that he was, uh, he had hot anger, um, right? That God would see the inclination of the heart of man and that it had devolved into a sin-filled and despicable place like Gotham or, or Vegas. And he was, he was angry and mad. Um, but that isn't the reaction that's described. It's regret, And the only way that such a reaction makes sense is if God is as close to creation as he says that he is. That he intimately formed all that is in this world and it has now turned away from him. Like a parent that has lovingly nurtured and cared for a child who ultimately wants nothing to do with them. Right? there's, There's regret. There's sadness. There's hurt. And I imagine it's what a parent would feel like if their child engaged in destructive behavior. Perhaps right, you were so carefully uh, and so deeply caring for your child, loving him or her so much. Um, and all of a sudden they're taking on this destructive particular behavior. And all you kind of remember within your mind is that, that cute little first grader with no teeth in the front of their mouth, right? Um, and yet somehow... Within the context of the relationship, it has devolved into a destructive pattern. And there's sadness. Like that parent, God grieves over each one of us that he formed in our mother's wombs. Because he knows you. He loves you. He wants you. He is grieved and hurt by our rebellion. And though he is hurt, he is a God of justice. And he says in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And not only man. We kind of miss this. But man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. And this seems a little like an overreaction. Um, Have all of mankind sinned equally? Uh, are all equally culpable for the sin that is going on in the world at that particular point in time. And not only that, but why are the birds and the animals being held accountable? Right? If y'all are like our family, when you watch a, a, even a PG movie and negative things are happening to humans, we're like, ah, no big deal. And then all of a sudden the dog gets hurt and everyone's so sad, right? These, these, this meant to be like, what is going on here? 
Because either we committed sin, uh, excuse me, sorry, we often have such a small view of sin. And that's, I think, the point. That something, uh, we, we view sin as something that only we are responsible for. That either we, we committed the sin or, or we failed uh, to do the loving thing. Uh, and that that's all that sin is. And that is definitely true. Um, but sin is bigger than that. Because as God created and established mankind as rulers, as those with dominion over the rest of creation, he gave us authority and power that was intended to be used for blessing. And so when we instead use our sinfulness uh, for selfish purposes, those consequences are far-reaching. Our misuse of that authority that was given to us by God distorts the land. It corrupts creation. It destroys that peace that we have amongst all of God's created order. It causes divisions amongst ourselves, amongst mankind. Racism, sexism, every ism that you can possibly think of. It's the God-given authority that men and women were given that makes sin so destructive. The influence and the collective action of men and women together create this incredibly powerful culture. And as we see in this passage, when it is a culture filled with sinners apart from God's grace, it destroys everything in its path. And part of the point of this passage is that any culture can be like that. Any group of people can be like that. And so God... Being a God of justice needs to deal with this sin-infested culture. He needs to hold sinners like us accountable for using his world for our own purposes. And that justice for our sin demands death. There is no dealing in part with sin. It is meant to be dealt with in its wholeness. There is no half measure. God promised to destroy the head of the serpent... And so here, it seems as if the rest of mankind is living as if they are of the seed of the serpent, justly deserving his displeasure. That's not just the story of those here in Genesis, but that's true of all of us as well, right? That God's justice is poured out, but that's not the end of the story, because the end of the story is far more amazing. And that is that God is a God of divine grace. Though God's justice against sin is sure and though it will come in its fullness, he is patient. In verse 3, it says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And this listing of years is not in reference to, to mankind's age but rather it's a reference to what is coming. It meaning like it's a statement of the warning of the coming flood. Um, if you recall in our sermon series a year ago, we, we did a sermon series on, on Jonah. Um, it's like Jonah's warning to Nineveh, right? When he proclaims that they have 40 days until Nineveh will be destroyed. Here God is saying to mankind, you have 120 years prior to this destruction. And as the Apostle Peter writes in his second letter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is what God is doing here. He's giving them time to come to grips with their sinfulness, to regret their sinfulness and be saddened to it by the point of repentance or to the point of repentance. And that is what God does with them. And that is what God does with us. He gives you and me time. He's patient. He's impatient in showing us our sin and telling us of the upcoming judgment, but desiring that we should change, repent, and turn towards him. And in one of the most surprising parts of the passage, we come to verse 8, where Noah, a person that we're about to get to know, has found favor in God's eyes. And at first read, this sounds a whole lot like, you know, um, it sounds a whole lot like those other people did all this bad stuff and they deserve judgment. And then there's this super awesome guy who does some super awesome, amazing things. And his name is Noah. And because he's super awesome, God has found, he's found favor in God's eyes. Um, and it's not that Noah has earned God's favor, Right? Rather, God's eyes found favor in Noah because God graciously determined to show him favor. Out of nowhere and with no background, we meet Noah. And that is purposeful. That we have no reason to judge whether or not he actually is deserving of God's pleasure. Because he isn't. He gets God's favor and God's pleasure because God is a gracious God who delights to show favor. It's important to notice the very first actor in the story of Noah is not Noah. It is God. He is the one who graciously intervenes and shows favor. For you and for me, God is the first actor in our stories. Right? We want to believe at times that God should look at us with favor. Right? Like, I'm a catch, you know? God, it's so, you know, you're lucky to have me. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I'm a part of the kingdom, but like, let's be honest, like I'm bringing something to this relationship. Um, no, God delights to show you mercy. God delights to be gracious to you. And any favor that he desires to show to you is because of who he is, not because of who you are. Not because you've earned it or deserve it. And that first sounds like bad news to us. Like, you know, I thought I was better than that. Or I'm kind of lovable. You know, uh, God desires to love me. But you are lovable. And here's the reason why. Not because you have earned his love. But because he has said that you are loved in him. You are lovable because he loves you. Through Christ, he has moved toward us, and through Christ, we have received divine favor. That as we place our trust in him, we are promised that the justice that God should pour out upon us has been poured out upon his son. And further, that in Christ Jesus, we have received his divine favor. And so my application for us this morning is that in light of all of this, in light of taking root and taking stock of who we are, That that we are a people who are made in the image of God and a people who are utterly sinful, totally depraved, apart from God. That he is a God who has shown us favor in Jesus Christ. 
And so allow for this to be a catalyst for understanding who you are. And rather than be afraid of acknowledging that truth about ourselves, allow for us uh, to acknowledge our sinfulness in our loving Father's arms, who is gracious toward us, desiring that none should perish. So take time to name your sin, to repent, to turn toward him. In light of his grace, knowing that in Jesus Christ you are forgiven, you are welcomed, you are comforted. In light of who he is, you are in him. You are loved because he loves you. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. That though we often want to view ourselves as a catch, um, Though we often want to believe uh, that we bring so much to this relationship, Lord, may we recognize what you have brought to us, that you are redeeming us, you are changing us. And so, Father, I pray that today you would give us the, um, the strength and the conviction to name our sin, to regret it, to repent over it, and to turn toward you. Um, knowing that in Christ Jesus we have your favor. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Mm-hmm.